We come now to a time where we celebrate and remember the death, the life, the death, and the burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Paul gives us some great uh, and some powerful imperative statements here. First of all, we are to remember the death of the Lord Jesus. He says, as often as you do this, you do it as a memorial, as a remembrance of the death of Jesus Christ. He took that idea straight from Jesus Himself. As often as you do this, you remember Me. And then He gives a second imperative statement, a command, and that is that you examine yourself before taking the supper so that if there's anything uh, um, unworthy in you, any sin that is unconfessed, anything that might separate you in, in the in the, this time uh, from the Lord that you confess it and make it right and then take from the cup and from the bread. This far from a prohibition of taking the Lord's Supper is an encouragement to take it. He's not saying, we, he's not saying if you're not perfect, you can't take it. He's saying we're not perfect. Therefore, we do examine our life and we do confess our sin and we do draw near to the throne of grace by Jesus Christ. And now we take the supper with Him to remember Him and to honor Him and to glorify Him. And so, I want to leave it with you to examine your life. During this time, to quietly among yourselves, examine your life. Look to Jesus Christ. Cling to the cross anew and fresh this morning. And then we might take the supper together. So, this will be a time of confession for you, of remembrance for you and uh, of, uh, of talking and being with the Lord. So let's enter into this time of preparing ourselves for the supper, and then I will close us in prayer. Father, we do draw near to You now through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we, Lord, hope that in our hearts we're able to remember Him. 
give Him due honor and praise for the great sacrifice made for us on the cross and the great victory over sin and death through the resurrection. And Lord, I come first of all thanking You that You made a way where there was no way that You uh, descended from heaven, Lord Jesus, to take the sin of Your people on You, that You were bruised and You were beaten for us and that You took the punishment and You took the wrath that was due to us. And You then not only did that, but through the power of Your grace, transferred to us righteousness, forgiveness, reconciliation, oneness with You through the Spirit, adoption by that same Spirit, eternal life, and glorification of our bodies. And so now as we come to this time of communion, we remember You. And we remember that just before celebrating this, You taught those around You that a seed must fall into the ground and die, that it might be resurrected to bear much fruit. And so, Lord, even as we remember You, we are called and challenged to die today to ourselves, to die to our wants, our desires, to die to our families and our friends and our nation and our own church and to live in light of the gospel to all men. And so we're challenged as we come here in communion with you to leave the communion table, challenged anew to live a life that is represented by grace, that is represented by the gospel, and that is a light and a dark world. Lord Jesus, we do honor you. We confess our sins. Uh, I trust that the people here have done that, Lord, and are prepared now to take the supper. And so we do it in a worthy manner, not in an unworthy manner, desiring to honor and glorify you at this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. And when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Wendell White, would you pray for us? Lord, we do thank you for this sacrament. We thank you for its meaning. We thank you for its author, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We're thankful, Lord God, that, uh, that uh, you remember that we are dust, that we have a short memory. But we pray, Lord God, that you have provided this sacrament in order that we might know that our sins are forgiven through your uh, body and by your blood and by your sacrifice. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Jesus said to his, those gathered around him in John chapter 6, verse 55, For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on my flesh will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Luke also records the giving of the cup at the Lord's Supper. In Luke 22, verse 21. Excuse me, 20. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. John, would you pray for us? Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, Lord. Uh, we come, for you, come before you broken, Lord. Lord, as we confess our many sins before you, Lord, during this special time. Lord, we also come before you joyful, Lord. We, the way that you have provided for us, Lord, we come before you in this very special time, Lord, not only to identify with you, Lord, but to exalt you, to praise you, to worship you, and to glorify you more than anything. Lord, we just uh, ask that you would uh, pour out a special blessing on this special time that we have together as a congregation in worshiping and honoring you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Romans 5, verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 says, But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we remember you today. We remember you. We seek to remember you every day, but Lord, we confess that often in our hurried lives we do not think of the great blessings you've given us from your rich treasure chest in heaven of glory, of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of adoption, of the depths of the riches of your glory and your mercy and your love which we could never reach to the bottom of. Lord, you are not exhausted. Your gift is not tired. It is as powerful today as it was before the foundation of the world and it will be after this world has passed away. We are safe and secure today because your blood has been shed on our behalf and now you have taken our sin and we have received your righteousness. And so clothed in your righteousness, Lord, we come confessing and praising and glorying only in you, finding our boast not in our abilities but in you, the great God and King of heaven and earth. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for all that you have done and will do in the days to come. It's in your name to pray. We pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this this morning is from Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What a powerful truth, one that um, I confess I often take for granted, the truth of the balance between being a sinner and being saved by grace. You know, we often say we're nothing but sinners saved by grace, and I want to cause you this morning hopefully to stop and think about that statement. And the need for a simple period in the middle. We are sinners, period. We are saved by grace, period. We are far from helpless and hopeless in this world. We have hope in Jesus Christ, who through His very Spirit, His very incarnate spirit dwells in us. And now we are not simply sinners. We're saved by grace. Heirs and joint heirs to Christ. I want to cause you to think on that. We read Romans 8. It is also in the thoughts of John 
I believe, in verse 14 when he says, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Or the ESV would say, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.14 is considered by many theologians to be the greatest single verse in the Scripture to describe the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When we say incarnation, we mean the deity dwelling in flesh. God in a human body. That's what the word incarnation means. When a person reads the text before us today, it's very easy to pass it by as if it's just a simple verse without much depth and a verse that doesn't need much thought. But when our minds fix on these simple words and this small text, we find that the bottom of the depth of this great truth cannot be plumbed by a human. We cannot understand. We cannot fathom the great powerful truth being conveyed to us by the simple words, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jehovah God moved into the neighborhood in our vernacular, moved into the neighborhood and lived with mankind. Jehovah God did that. Last week it became clearer to us that the glory of God is grace and truth. He, not, he has not violated the truth by giving us grace. We define grace simply as receiving a gift and not getting what we deserve. Receiving a gift we could not earn and not receiving what we have earned. And we understand that to be the gift Eternal life, which comes through Jesus Christ, is what the gift is. And what we deserve is eternal separation from God in hell. And we talked about that last week. And God has not violated the truth in order to give us grace. He has become the just and the justifier of those who believe in Him. In other words, He's the judge and He's the scapegoat, which the judge pours the guilt out on. There has to be justice or He's not God. And I would say there has to be grace or He's also not glorious and He's not God. And so we have both in God. By His very character, He is both grace and truth. The standard of God is perfect obedience to the law. And we have not lived up to the standard. Therefore, man is worthy of death in hell. But God, because of His great and marvelous grace has given us eternal life as a gift that is extended through Jesus. Jesus is capable of giving us this gift on what basis, you might ask? On the basis of being God in human flesh. That's how He has the right to extend to us the grace of God because He is not only God, He's God in a body like us. In order to extend to us the gift of eternal life, He had to become like us. Live like us, without sin, without failure, perfect obedience, and then die an obedient death, humiliated on the cross in front of the whole world, and then be resurrected back to life. That's how we receive the gift, through Him, on the basis of Him being God in the flesh. Today, I want to show you that His condescension brings our ascension. He stooped down that He might lift us up. The old hymn, Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. And what I propose to you from this text, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, As the only Son of God, He's the only one who could stoop down and pick up the burden and lift us from the depths of sin. We have spent time in the past dealing with the nature of man. I trust that you remember those sermons well, or at least that you have studied it on your own and see that in our own right, by our own nature, we are worthy of death. This is is far from the exaltation of man 
This is an exaltation of the glory of the grace of God. That He takes a man who is totally, completely undone and unworthy of forgiveness and forgives him in Christ. This is an exaltation of Christ. So when I say He stooped down that He might lift us up, don't think I'm saying He put us on a pedestal. No. He lifted us up in salvation so that He is more glorious. And so that He is infinitely greater than any. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus, first of all, is co-equal with God the Father. He is co-equal. We do not need to make the mistake of some groups. The Arian, a sect of Christianity, which says, which is alive and well, by the way, in our day. It's not dead and gone. Which says, Jesus is a man who lived obediently and then was gifted with the Spirit. We don't believe that. We believe from the very conception in the womb, He is God in the flesh. He didn't earn the status of a great prophet or of a son of God. He is the very Son of God. And then the Unitarians who would deny the Trinity, the co-equality of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, we're saying we believe He is equal with the Father. He is equal with the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. How do we know this? I want to run through a list. You cannot keep up with this in your Bible. Write the verses down and look them up if you have time in the future. I'm going to run through them quickly. Micah 5 verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old. His eternal nature. From the days of eternity, Micah says. God says to the prophet Micah, the one who's born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the littlest town, the littlest village on the plains, you might say. The one born there, in that stable, is the ruler of Israel. And he is from, his comings and goings are from old. Time past, eternity. He's eternal. He was in the beginning with God, John verse 1. I mean, chapter 1 verse 2 says. He's eternal. That shows He's equal with God. He is omnipresent. He is omnipresent means He's everywhere all the time. Matthew 18, 20 says, When two or three are gathered together in My name, Jesus speaking, there am I in the midst of them. Talking about conflict resolution particularly. When two or three gather together to handle a matter of conflict, If they are there in my name, I am there with them. He can't be everywhere if he's bound and only a man. This shows his nature like God, that he is like God the Father. He is everywhere. He's God in the flesh. Matthew 28, verse 20 says, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the world. If he's not everywhere all the time, he cannot be with all believers everywhere in all time. He is Eternal, He is omnipresent. He is immutable, which means He does not change. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A, a group of verses here, Hebrews 1, 8, 10, and 12. But to the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Your kingdom. And You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the world and the heavens and the work of Your hands. Like a cloak, You will fold them up and they will be changed. But You are the same and Your years will not fail. He's eternal. He's omnipresent. He's unchanging. He is almighty. All of these characteristics are characteristics of God the Father shared between Him and the Son in the Scripture. John 1.3 says, All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1.16-17 For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. 
Matthew 28, 18, All power has been given to me, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth. A group of verses here in Revelation. Revelation 1, 8, 1, 13, 1, 17. I am the Alpha and Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus speaking says, I am the Almighty. Remember, in the Old Testament, God the Father was called Almighty God, Jehovah, the one who is eternal, the one who is with us always, the one who is unchanging. And Jesus is claiming all of these attributes for Himself. Last week I said, you don't have the choice of Jesus being a nice guy. He is either God, He's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. He cannot be a good man if He is not God. He cannot. Claims like this either mean He is true or He is not true. If He is not true, He's a blasphemer. And so, we don't have the choice of Him just being a kind, old Santa Claus guy. He's not that. Far from it. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And when I saw Him, I fell as one dead at His feet. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. John bows down, falls down at his feet, Jesus Christ, and he worships him. And he's not rebuked for it. Every angel who came in the name of the Lord that was worshipped. By the way, they almost always are worshipped. People fall down and worship them. They all say, Do not worship me. I am not God. Okay? But here a glorious being like the Son of Man is standing before John and he falls down on his face and he worships him. He collapses in fear and in trembling. And in in fear of holiness, he falls down and says, you know, I I can just hear the words of Isaiah as they come out in Isaiah 6. Same response. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Jesus, far from rebuking him, comforts him. He receives His worship. The only person, the only being that can be worshipped is God. That's the point of the Scripture. So this Jesus Christ is receiving worship. He not only received it here, but He received it from the lepers He healed. He received it from the blind men He gave sight to. He received it from the disciples themselves. He received it from the rulers uh, who crucified Him. He received worship from anyone and everyone who gave it to Him. Never a rebuke. Always acceptance. This proves He is one with the Father, I believe. uh, Jesus was talking to Peter in John um, 21. And it leads into the fact that He is... Jesus is incomprehensible. You can't understand Him, but He comprehends all things. He understands everything. In, uh, in, In John 21, when... Peter is being questioned by Jesus about loving him. 21.17, Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know everything. Peter says, you comprehend everything. You know it all. Why are you asking me, in a sense? Matthew 11.27, Jesus speaking. These are the red words in your Bible. No man knows the Son but the Father. Neither does any man know the Father but the Son and the one whom the Son reveals Him to. Jesus is claiming deity. He's saying nobody knows the Father and nobody knows me except the people that I reveal myself to and the Father to. This shows their unity and their oneness. Colossians 2.3 In Him are in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's eternal. He's omnipresent. He is almighty. He is incomprehensible, but comprehends everything. He is unchanging. He is infinitely good and holy. 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There is no one like Jehovah. Acts 3, 14 uh, says, The Holy One, talking of Jesus, and the just, the one who knew no sin, Hebrews 6.26 says, Without sin, without spot, holy, harmless, undefiled. John 1.14 says, In whom is no sin, full of grace and truth. 
full of grace and truth. He is creator, preserver, and governor of all things. Colossians 1.16, we read earlier, claims that He governs everything. John 1.3, we read that, other, uh, that earlier. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And then we see in Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the power of His Word. This is an attribute of Jesus that He upholds everything. Romans 9.5, Christ came who is over all the eternal blessed God. Amen. This is Paul's conception of who Jesus is. He's the searcher of men's hearts. This is an attribute only given to God the Father in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, He searches the hearts of men. John 2, 24-25. This simple commentary from John, listen to how powerful this statement is. This is just commentary after the miracle at Canaan at the wedding. Listen to what He says. But Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man. For he knew what was in man. This is simple commentary. Things we disregard regard when we read is unimportant. Yet it claims a deity, an a, a, a attribute of eternal, omnipresent, immutable, incomprehensible, but comprehending all things, infinitely good and holy. He's the creator. He's the one who searches men's hearts. He ultimately searches their hearts in Matthew 25, 31-32, when He says, The Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him. Then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd does his sheep from the goats. He is the ultimate searcher of man's heart. So, in these attributes which I have just listed for you, I believe it becomes impossible to deny the godness, the deity of Jesus Christ. He is the Word, the eternal Word in the flesh. I haven't covered all of the texts because of the need to be economical with our time, but there are hundreds literally scattered through the Scriptures. And verse 14 of chapter 1 says that He put on flesh and He dwelt with us. Can you even begin to wrap your mind around the thought that this God I have just described to you, who is eternal, who is everywhere all the time, who is incomprehensible yet knows all things, who is unchanging, this God who is the creator, the preserver, and the governor of the whole world and heaven itself and the universe, put on flesh and lived among mankind. This thought has really challenged my life and I wanted to challenge your life and I'm going to apply it to you and to me, I think. As I do that, I want to make a quick comment about the word begotten in your text. I believe the best English translation here is the ESV, which says the only son from the father. The King James, the New King James, say begotten, which gives us the idea of began or being born, okay? And this is where error enters. People gather that one word in the English, do not look at the way it was written in the original manuscripts in that language, and they say, see, Jesus isn't eternal. He started right here. But the Greek word used here does not denote being born. It means He is preeminent. It means He is the first and the last. It means that He is the significant One, the special Son, which stands in contrast to all other sons. It is in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word used for Isaac, the son of Abraham. It says, your only son, Genesis chapter 22. Take your only son and sacrifice him on the mountain. Is Isaac his only son? Not physically. There's Ishmael. But Isaac is the only special one. Isaac is the only one who has the promise of God. 
Isaac is the only one who God has given Abraham to bring about the seed of Jesus Christ. Ishmael then is not Abraham's son of promise. Isaac is. And here, the same Greek word is used of Jesus Christ. He is the only son from the Father, so that there might be many sons in Him. Or as Colossians 1.18 says it, I believe best, He is the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have preeminence. He's the firstborn uh, from the dead. He's the firstborn. He is preeminent. He is supreme over all. Now that is a point I want to make so I can get to where I want to apply and end and wrap this up as neatly as I can. I told Seth earlier this week, we were in my office and I said, I just don't know how to preach this verse. I called Aaron I said, Aaron, this is a dangerous verse because it has so much truth in it. You, you, you run the risk of making people think things that aren't true because there's so much to be said and so little time to say it. But I, I hope that I brought some clarity here. He is God. He is not born as we were, in other words, with the beginning. He's eternal. The word begotten means the special one, the preeminent one, the only son in a sense. So, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. I'll make this reference and then I want to make application. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Don't ever disregard that verse when you read the following verses. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, being the very essence of God did not consider it something to be grasped to being equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus Christ, this eternal God, put himself in a body. He grew up like our children grow up, but without sin. He was in a likeness like our children, though. He grew up. He gained knowledge. He learned at the, tabern- at the tabernacle, at the synagogue, at the temple. Uh, he, he obeyed his parents. He learned how to put on his clothes, his robe, or whatever it is he wore at that time. Uh, he learned to, to uh, etiquette and politeness. He learned all those things. He truly was in the likeness of a man. It's not a charade God is playing. He really was human. He had zits like we do, and he had problems with uh, hair like we do. You know, I hope he probably had more hair than I do, but he had hair, and it had problems days where, just like yours does, he faced the normal persecution of a teenager growing up in a culture like any other teenager would. He was like us in this earth. Not separate from us, like us. In every way except sin. You're not comfortable with that kind of talk about Jesus, are you? You need to be comfortable with it. The Bible is comfortable with it. He feels your pain. He knows what you face. He's been tempted in every way, just like you are, except without sin. You need to be comfortable with His humanness. Don't deny it thinking you're doing God a favor. Accept it. And I'll tell you why. Because Philippians, Paul says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. I believe it is imperative that we learn to live John 1.14 every day. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If the God of the universe put on flesh, lived with mere men, why are we unwilling to put on the flesh of those around us and live with them? that they might see the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a difficult truth. I want to push it to the extreme. I want to challenge your thoughts. Unfortunately, our church, along with others in our day, are silently, but strongly, ethnically, racially segregated. Why? Because we're unwilling to humble ourselves to put on the flesh of other men so that we might bring them to Jesus Christ.
We need desperately to face the truth that we are silent racists at best. We're silent homophobes. We are unwilling to see them as mere humans like ourselves and put on their flesh and live with them that they might see the gospel. We're much more comfortable being segregated and separated. If the God of the universe can humble himself and put on flesh like me and you, how can we not humble ourselves being mere humans and reach to the needy among us and live with them that we might reach them with the gospel? We are silent class conscience. We are more nationalistic than we are global. The truth is we are, for the most part, content to simply live in a bubble and watch with no concern as thousands die ignorant of Jesus Christ and His gospel. Why? I believe partly because we fail to make verse John, uh, this verse in John 1 true in our lives. The Son of the living God humbled Himself and put on mere flesh, but we cannot see life through the eyes of our fellow men so that we might win them to Christ. How will we ever live in the truth of the gospel if we will not reject the bonds of sin by the power of the Holy Spirit? Next week I want to prove the answer to this question, but for now let me simply say that the only hope we have to live by the power of the gospel and conquer the sin of segregation along with all other sin in our life is by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus humbled Himself by putting on flesh, living a sinful, sinless life and dying on the cross, His ascension guaranteed the ascension of all those who believe in His name. We're the temple of the living God, the Spirit resides in us and we are the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Before I say much more in this regard, I want to close by reading a passage to you found in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 and you will see what I mean by this verse. Now all things are of God. We are reconciled, who, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you see it? God has reconciled man to himself. He put on flesh and dwelt with them that he might reconcile them through his own body and through his own life. And now he has given us that ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What am I trying to say to you? Simply this. Until we can learn to live as Jesus through the Spirit and the power of His grace and see lost men and saved men. Until we can live in His Spirit and His grace and let His gospel dwell in us richly that we would take the message of reconciliation to the world instead of our group only. Until we are willing to step across racial divides, ethnic divides, cultural divides, socioeconomic divides, homophobic versus heterosexual divides, until we're willing to take on the flesh like Christ and walk with them, we still mingle their blood on our hands. And like those who betrayed Christ, we can wash our hands in a basin and say, their blood's not on our hands. All we would like but it doesn't change the fact that our pride, our sinful flesh, prevents us from killing the flesh, submitting to the Spirit, and taking the gospel to the world. The Word became flesh and lived with us. Let us live in the Word and His Spirit 
with them. Let's pray. Father, truth hurts.